0: today. And a special welcome to my two good buddies, Norman Ken. It's good to have you here. Hope it's a good day for you as well. Take your Bibles if you would and turn with me to Matthew chapter twenty-five. I am very much in love with this book. It's been my privilege, and it is an unspeakable privilege, to declare its truth now for this will mark, I think, eighteen years that I have endeavored to accurately proclaim what God has said in this book. That's a remarkable privilege and one I do not take lightly. And it breaks my heart every time one of my good buddies desecrates the privilege of being able to do what I'm about to do. And I guess my greatest fear is someday I may desecrate the privilege as well and render myself disqualified. God forbid that should ever happen. I love this book, and every time I open its pages before a group of people like you, it is with the proper, I believe, reverence and awe for what it teaches. I do have to admit to you, though, that there are times I wish I could take a pair of scissors and cut out a couple of the verses. If I was commissioned by God to write the Bible, and I wasn't, but if I was, there would be a couple of verses I would not have included. They are very troublesome to me very difficult to understand they have literally kept me up at night trying to figure it all out there is no way in my finite limited thinking as a fallen creature i can ever understand all that god has done and why he has done it there will always be things about god i do not quite understand but there are a couple of verses that stand out as real mysteries to me and i have been driven to try to figure it out matthew chapter twenty five includes a couple of these let me read them to you and in honor of the word of God would you stand with me please Matthew chapter 25 verse 41 Jesus said this then he will also say to those on his left depart from me accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels That verse troubles me. If I was commissioned by God to write the Bible, I would drop one very significant word in that verse. It would be the word eternal. I can handle people falling into the fire and being annihilated. But the Bible doesn't teach annihilation. The Bible teaches that that fire is eternal. We are talking this morning about the eternal torment of human beings. That reality troubles me. Turn to the back of your Bible to Revelation chapter 20, if you would. Revelation chapter 20. Keep in mind as I read this verse to you, verse 10, that when you read about the beast and the false prophet, those are human beings. The beast admittedly possessed of Satan himself, but a human being nevertheless. Revelation 20:12, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. If I was writing the verse, I'd put a period there, but there's a comma, not a period. Where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever that troubles me why why does the torment of human beings have to be day and night forever and ever how could a loving god cast people into an eternity of hell i, tr- I struggle with that it troubles me turn back a few pages to hebrews chapter 10 hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31 as it reads in your english bible it is the classic example of an understatement english does not do the thrust of the original language justice it says this it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living god terrifying that word in english does not have the impact of what we are trying to communicate this morning it is absolutely mind-boggling and. Ken, to properly use the word, it is an awesome thought that multiplied millions of people will fall into the hands of the living God and suffer His terror. Let me give you one more reference, and then we will play, pray and try to unravel the puzzle. Second Corinthians chapter 5. This is why we do what we do at the Master's College. This is why Hume Lake does what Hume Lake does, as well as every other fine camp that has been represented on our campus. Sugar Pine who was here yesterday, Mount Gilead who was here last week, Pine Summit, Mount Hermon, Forest Home. This is why our churches do what they do. It all comes down to this. 2 Corinthians 5.11, and it is really my philosophy of preaching. Every time I mount the steps of a platform, it is with this desire in mind. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. That is the driving motivation behind every proclaimer of God's truth. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Let's pray together, and then I will endeavor to preach to you the message I wish I never had to preach. Father, thank You for these moments that we have. I pray that as we come to this awesome reality that You have described in Your Word, the reality of what we have come to call hell I pray that you will speak to each heart may it cause us in our own thinking to be ever so grateful for what you have done in our lives and may it motivate us to be ever so passionate in trying to persuade men we pray in Christ's name amen thank you you may be seated let me begin with the disclaimer it is very easy and speaking on a topic like this, to use it to manipulate a crowd. And I'm very sensitive to manipulation. I never want to be accused of that. I have heard speakers do it. Much to my embarrassment and much to what I believe is the offense of the Word of God, it would be easy for me to do what I have heard many do, and that is fan the flames and make hell burn ever so brightly and literally, as the bumper sticker says, try to scare the hell out of an audience. Literally. And I don't want to do that. That is an improper use of the Word of God to scare someone by exaggerating the point into making a commitment so that they escape hell. You don't need my exaggerations or manipulations. The Bible speaks pointedly enough about this topic. What I want to do this morning, if I can, is give you a biblical glimpse into that place the Bible refers to as the place of eternal fire can't remember when the last time was that I heard in chapel someone speak on the topic of hell. I believe that it is a much-needed emphasis because it is, after all, the eternal reality that we are dealing with. And so, in an attempt to preach the whole counsel of God, I feel a necessity to address a most unpopular topic, the topic of hell. It is, after all, Valentine's Day and only appropriate that we talk about love. That is my theme, but I'm coming at it through the back door, okay? So we will end up fine, but we have to understand what it is we are dealing with. There is a place the Bible refers to as the lake of fire. There is a place the Bible refers to as the eternal destiny of Satan and all his angels. There is a place the Bible clearly indicates will be the eternal destiny of multiplied millions of people. Jesus alluded to it in Matthew chapter 7 at the conclusion of what we have called the Sermon on the Mount. As He came to the climax, the pinnacle point of this exemplary sermon, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 verse 13, and it was His invitation, the conclusion to His message, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. How many people will end up in hell? Answer? Many. Many. Then he said, verse 14, the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it christianity always has been and always will be a minority movement the many will suffer the torments that i am about to describe to you the few will escape them this is an awesome topic the reality of hell perhaps the best way to proceed is to make a couple of declarative statements describing what hell is like. I will make five of them. So if you are in the habit of taking notes, number one to five, I will begin as basically as I can and try to develop the whole thought as we move along. The questions haunting us along the way are really two. Number one, how could a loving God send people to this place? Question number two, why does the torment of hell have to be eternal? At this point, as heretical as it will sound to you, I wish the Jehovah's Witnesses were right and annihilationism was true. But it isn't. Why? My goal this morning, to answer those two questions. Descriptive statement number one. I have already alluded to it. Hell is a place prepared for the devil and his angels. I read that to you at the beginning, Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. It is a bit of comfort to me to know that when God conceived of a place we call hell, it was not His intention for people to go there. It was a place that He conceived for the devil and his angels. Now, quite honestly, I am comfortable with that. When I understand who Satan is, a mere angel, his name was Lucifer, He was of the order of cherub, Ezekiel tells us in chapter 28. When I conceive in my mind, and I have a fertile imagination, of this pipsqueak, puny little peon angel walking up to the throne room of God, face to face, eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose, clenching his fist, shaking it in an act of rebellion in God's face, And making the pronouncement to God, I will be like you. And then seducing one-third of all angels, a third of the myriads upon myriads of angels, Revelation 12 tells us, one-third of myriads of angels following him, buying into his seductions, joining hands with Lucifer in his rebellion against God and becoming demons for them to have to suffer the eternal torment of hell forever and ever. I can live with that. Who did he think he was? How could a mere angelic being dare to clench his fist and shake it in God's face? What kind of egomaniac would proclaim in front of the Almighty that he will become like God? There is no corner of hell too hot for that, in my opinion. How many of you agree with me when it comes to Satan burn Baby burn. Can I see your hands? How many of you would agree? Alright, very good. No problem. And he and the demons understand that, and because of that, James 2 says they tremble. But fact number two, hell is a place reserved for every human being who joins hands with Lucifer in his rebellion against God. I am not one given to tears I do not cry on the outside on the inside there are times when I experience a broken heart preparing this message was one of those experiences I am able and I guess it is a bit of hypocrisy that haunts me I am able to stand before you and declare what I'm going to declare Claire, with apparently no emotion involved at all, I have hardened my heart to the point where I am able to do that, to simply make it through the material. But as I was preparing this and coming to grips with the realities that I was reading, I could not escape the fact that there are people in my life very close to me, loved ones who have now departed this earthly life, who are, as far as I can assess, experiencing right now the reality that I am describing to you. And that is painful to me beyond description. I wish this wasn't true. If only God would allow me to take some divine scissors and cut these verses out. But it is true that every human being who joins hands with Lucifer in his rebellion against God will suffer the same doom and destiny Jesus made it very clear once again the conclusion to the sermon on the mount verse 21 there will be many surprises coming Jesus said not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven talk is after all very what cheap not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but But, he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now mark this down somewhere. It is very important for you to understand. Every human being who wakes up in hell is there for one reason. He is there because of an attitude of high-handed, willful, defiant rebellion. It is a rebellion issue. Rebellion. You can take the entire human race, 5.2 billion people, and divide them into one of two categories, the line of demarcation being this. Are they living their lives in submission to the Lordship of Christ, or are they living their lives in defiance of the Lordship of Christ? Jesus drew that line Himself. That line was drawn when Jesus said, Those who enter heaven are those who do the will of my father that is the line of demarcation the line separating heaven and hell is a line of submission versus rebellion he punctuated the point in verse 23 and then i will declare to them i never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness lawlessness it is an issue of rebellion and for any who would teach you that a person can come to Christ and experience the eternal bliss and blessing of heaven and yet live his life in defiance of the Lordship of Christ anyone who declares that to you totally misses the point of Matthew 7 it is the essence of hypocrisy for you and me To sing, King Jesus is all, my all and all, or I will love and serve you, I'll obey, and then live our lives in willful, defiant rebellion. Talk is cheap. It has nothing to do with signing a a decision card at camp. It has nothing to do with a Jesus bumper sticker on the back of a car. The issue is not one of profession, it is one of lifestyle. Who are those who enter heaven? The few. Those who do the will, Jesus said, of My Father. Who are those who enter into hell? The many. Those, Jesus said, who practice lawlessness. It is a rebellion issue. Hell will be populated by many people who have chosen a life of rebellion there are those who say but those were the words of Jesus that's the gospel according to Jesus If I can borrow the phrase we're in a different dispensation now that was pre-cross we are now in post cross we are post Pentecost what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount is not binding oh really then let me direct your attention to romans chapter two this isn't jesus this is paul this isn't pre-cross this is post-cross this isn't pre-pentecost this is post-pentecost this is the dispensation of today paul made the issue exceedingly clear verse five of romans two but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Every man that bridges every dispensation, every man that is totally comprehensive and conclusive, the issue is one of rebellion. The word stubborn means this, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I choose to do it anyway. That is stubborn. Unrepentant says this I know what I'm doing is wrong I choose to do it anyway and I will do it again and again and again unrepentant God's wrath his righteous judgment is meted out to people in response to a stubborn unrepentant heart It is impossible to identify ourselves with Jesus Christ and anticipate the eternal blessing of heaven and yet respond to Him with a stubborn, unrepentant heart of wicked deeds. There will be many surprises coming. Talk is very cheap. description number three and this is another classic understatement hell is a place that is utterly terrifying now is when i could um, fan the flames i won't do that i respect your intelligence too much but i will direct your attention to Luke chapter 16 as probably the clearest eyewitness account of what hell is like. These are Jesus' words. This is what He says. Luke chapter 16, verse 23. And in Hades, He lifted up His eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom and he cried out and said father Abraham have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame but Abraham said child remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony and besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Verse twenty seven. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. Let me point out five facts about hell that you will learn from this passage. Number one, the man was conscious there is no soul sleep here he was not in a state of suspended animation he was conscious and felt the torment secondly he described it as a place of agony those are the words in the text verse 25 the last phrase you are in agony thirdly and admittedly this is my own interpretation it is suspect but I am reading between the lines apparently and I stress the word apparently apparently the man was all alone now that's an inference the passage does not state that but there is no record of any dialogue between him and anyone else in Hades obviously there were other people there but no mention of any dialogue at all I have had teenagers say to me on more than one occasion Listen, I would rather be in hell with my friends than in heaven without them. One teenager said to me, with my friends there and without God there, it'll be an eternal party. I mean, we will have a time for eternity. I saw one blatant bumper sticker. The person alluding to this thought Satan better watch it, because when I get there, I'm taking over. Can you imagine the heart of one who would put that on his car? Apparently from the passage, it isn't one gigantic dorm room where people are free to party throughout eternity. Apparently, it is solitary confinement. The fourth fact about hell from this passage... They were separated. He was separated from those in heaven by a great chasm, an impassable barrier, meaning that the destinies of both, the righteous and the wicked, are eternal and will never change. There is no crossover. And then finally, and this is the most horrifying of all, in my opinion, it is a place of memory. Memory. Notice what Abraham said, verse 25. Child, remember... That during-your-life memory. I have made this statement to students. I believe it's absolutely accurate. I have said to them, if you reject Jesus Christ and you live your life choosing to do so and your heart becomes hardened every time you do and you die in that state of rebellion, you will be tormented throughout eternity with the memory of Me. Think of that. Declaring this message to you. You will remember the opportunities that you had. You will remember the hardness of your heart when you heard the words. And you will remember the conscious willful rejection when you walked out of the chapel. You will be haunted by that memory. Hell is a place that is utterly terrifying. Let me show you one other example. I don't want to beg the point. I think this will be sufficient. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus again speaking as he gave the parables and in Matthew chapter 13 he gave a parable in which he alluded to hell and he said this. Matthew chapter 13 verse 47. Again the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers and the bad they threw away. Question, what separates a good fish from a bad fish? What is the line of demarcation? Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angel shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. There it is. The wicked from the righteous. It is a matter of lifestyle. It is a matter of submission versus rebellion. It is a matter of obedience versus defiance. That is the line of demarcation. The angels will take out the wicked from among the righteous and will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then he said, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. Confession is good for the soul. Let me make a confession. Do you understand all these things? My answer, no. How can I possibly, in my mind, picture the kinds of horrific scenes I am endeavoring to describe to you? Four facts about hell revealed in this parable. Number one, it is certain. Jesus said, So it will be. It is certain. Decreed by God secondly it is comprehensive you'll notice that the dragnet gathered fish of every kind comprehensive every one of us will face this moment of separation the righteous from the wicked every one of us every one of us will be placed into one of two categories the good fish or the bad thirdly from this passage Hell is a place in which people throughout eternity will vent their relentless anger against God. Notice what it says. Verse 50. There shall be weeping. What does that mean? Have you ever been so angry against someone that you, that you spontaneously broke into a torrent of tears? The reason for the weeping is the hatred they feel against God throughout eternity. They will be venting their anger. And fourthly, throughout eternity, people will be venting toward God. Their unbridled fury. Notice that He made reference, Jesus did, of the gnashing of teeth. Why gnashing of teeth? Have you ever been so so furious that your jaw tightened and you began to grind your teeth together? It will be a place in which people throughout eternity will be venting against God their unbridled fury and their relentless anger against Him. Why is the torment of hell eternal? Answer. Because the rebellion of man is eternal. That's why. There is no sign here of repentance. There is no sign here of grief. There is no crying out for salvation. Even the rich man didn't cry that he would be delivered from one place to the other. He only cried that the torment would be reduced. But there is no indication that he ever wanted to bridge that chasm and be in heaven. The rebellion of man is eternal. The justice of God is eternal. That's why there is no annihilationism. That's why they're not simply put out of existence. That's why the fire is eternal. Because the hatred of man against his God is eternal. And will be vented throughout eternity. Let me make a fourth observation. This is of critical importance. Hell is a place that is deserved. Deserved. How could any human being deserve that? If you ask that question in the secret recesses of your own heart, how could any human being deserve what I have just described? Then you and I are guilty of minimizing the doctrine of total depravity. I'm not sure we understand just how inherently wicked human beings can be. I gave it to you in a propositional way last week, stating the truth. Let me now illustrate it for you, all right? Let me show you just how hard the human heart can become. Let me show you, if I can, just how hard your heart can become and mine. It is amazing. It is mind boggling in its impact. I'm just not quite sure we really understand, even after discussing depravity together, how far reaching that doctrine is. Turn in your Bible, if you would, to Revelation chapter 6. While you're turning there, let me set the scene. This is future tense. This hasn't happened yet. This will happen during that time we call the tribulation. During the tribulation, this is what is happening. It's important you get this metaphor in your mind. There are times when my boy displays an attitude of defiance, that I meet that attitude with a very strong motivation the motivation of pain. We call it a SWAT. God is a loving father. God does not want any human being. He is not willing that any should perish. He wants none of us to suffer the torments that I have described. God is a loving Father, In the scenes I am about to describe to you is inflicting temporary pain on human beings, the goal of which is to cause their hard hearts to shatter and their clenched fists to open and their rigid knees to bend in submission to Him. God would rather a human being suffer temporary pain now than eternal torment later. So what I am describing to you, if you can picture God as a loving Father spanking or swatting His stubborn, unrepentant children in order to motivate them to repent and escape the fury of His wrath. With that explanation, these words will have much more significance. Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. As I read this, you tell me if this would get your attention, alright? I looked when He broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. Every mountain, every island moved out of their places. Would that get your attention? Would that be enough to get you to say, God, You win. You win. No more clenched fists, God, I open it. No more hard heart, God, I soften it. No more rigid knee, God. I bend it. You win. That's all they needed to say. And like a, like a water faucet, God would have shut off these manifestations of His wrath. Every strata of society is represented there. Verse 15, kings of the earth, commander, strong, rich, slave, free man. Every strata of society there. All they had to do was pray to God with a broken heart and say to Him, You win. Is that what they did? Keep reading. End of verse 15. Rich, strong, slave, free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne." Do you understand what that says? So hardened in their hearts, they would rather pray to a rock than pray to God. And what was their prayer? Hide me from Him! Anything but Him! Anything but Him! every human being who descends into hell will have those words on his lips hide me from his presence anything but Jesus Christ that is how hard a human's heart can become hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They knew who was controlling that water faucet. They knew He had the power to turn it off, but they wanted anything but to be in His presence. What do you expect God to do? Send the secret police, round them up, and drag them into heaven? Forcing them there against their will? You've heard me say it many times before, the thing about God that scares me the most, given enough time, He will give you and me exactly what we want. And God, in His love, answers that prayer. They will be hidden from His presence throughout eternity. That's what hell is. Suffering in their own hearts, the uncontrollable passion of lust, and passion of rebellion that will seed like a volcano in their hearts throughout eternity, causing them infinite and unmeasurable torment. Why don't you take a deep breath for a minute before I continue, alright? Turn a couple of pages over to Revelation chapter 9. These are incredible accounts. Your silence and stiffness give testimony to that. This is incredible stuff. Tell me if this would get your attention. God wasn't through. Revelation chapter 9, verse 18. A third of mankind was killed by these plagues. Would that get your attention? One third of the human race wiped out. Would that get your attention? What will it take to break a hard heart? Fire, smoke, brimstone, which proceeds out of their mouths. The power of horses is in their mouths and in their tails. They're like serpents. They're described. Look at verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues. Now stop right there. All they had to do, all they had to do was say, God, you win. That's it. My clenched fist, I open it. My hard heart, I soften it. My rigid knee, I bend. That's all they had to do. God, I repent. You win. You win. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands. That is stubborn, that is unrepentant. That phrase, did not repent, is like a skip in a record. It's irritating. You'll read it over and over again. Did not repent. Continued to worship demons. Continued to worship idols of gold and silver. That's materialism. Brass and stone and wood. Verse 21, Did not repent of their murder. They continued to kill one another. Did not repent of their sorcery. That is drug abuse, pharmakia, drug abuse, out of control. Did not repent of their immorality. Did not repent of their thievery. No change in lifestyle. Did not repent. What do you expect God to do? Question. How could a loving God send people to a place of torment Like I have just described. Question How many people will God send to those places of torment that I have described? How many? How many? Many? No. How many will God send to those places of torment? None. None. God sends no man to hell man is in hell by his own willful defiant choice don't ever miss it what is God's response to this as he looked into the barbecue and delight as he sees them sizzle finally got him I'll show them who's God defy my majesty you're gonna burn is that his attitude I don't have time to read it right now but you can write it down and look it up later His attitude is found in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1. His attitude is found in Jeremiah 14, verse 17. Both of those passages allude to the fact that throughout eternity, God is going to weep tears described by Jeremiah as rivers of water cascading down His face. Do you realize how much God loves the human race? He loves the human race so much that he will consign himself to an eternity of immeasurable tears and a broken heart rather than take a defiant sinner against his will and force him into heaven. While you and I will have every tear wiped from our eyes, God will be weeping throughout eternity over the memory of those who have defied His will and are in hell by their choice. That's how loving He is. It would be the essence of hatred to take them as a forced slave into bondage into heaven when they are crying all the while, Hide me from His presence, I don't want Him. That is how hard your heart can become. And mine. Maybe now you're beginning to get a glimpse of depravity. One more example. Revelation chapter 16. This is it. Alright? This is it. Three strikes and you're out. I mean, after this, there's no more that God can do. Revelation 16, verse 1, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. Will this get your attention? Check it out. The first angel went out and poured his bowl into the earth. It became a loathsome and malignant sore upon men who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. It became blood like that of a dead man. Everything in the sea died. Would that get your attention? Third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water. They became blood. Verse 8, Fourth angel poured out his bowl into the sun, and it was given to scorch men with fire. All they had to do was say, God, You win! Is that what they did? Verse 9, And men were scorched with fierce heat and blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues so as to not repent. blasphemy summer before last at Hume Lake I prayed with a girl on the steps leading up to the platform in Ponderosa Chapel she showed me the scars on her wrists where she had tried to commit suicide two months before told me that they strapped her down to a stainless steel gurney strapping her down because she was so self-destructive Told me that her father had abused her sexually for years. Told me that her mother kicked her out of the house because she hated her. They only let her out of the hospital so that she could come to Hume Lake that one week and then she was going back to the hospital. For an hour and a half, she unraveled to me all of the strands of her incredible story. I didn't know what to say to her. What do you say? My words were terribly trite. All I could think of was this. Have you ever prayed about it? (laughs) And she went, pray about it. Right. I'm not even sure God exists. What do you mean pray about it? I don't even know how to pray. The most bitter girl I've ever met. And I've met a lot of them. I said, it's very simple. Really, you can pray to God just like you're talking to me. You can pour your heart out to Him and tell Him anything you want. He wants to put His arm around you. He wants to comfort you in the midst of this. He wants to be a father to the fatherless. He wants to heal your broken heart. If you'll only give Him a chance, why not give me the privilege, I asked her, of being the first one to ever pray with you. Could I do that? I said, what do I have to lose? I'll try it. What do I do? I said, just tell Him what you want to tell Him. Is said, anything? anything. He'll listen. We bowed our heads. This is what she prayed. First prayer she'd ever prayed in her life. Jesus, go to hell. What was it? Two rows of students waiting to talk to me froze. Her words paralyzed them. I said to her, why did you pray that? She said, because my two best friends just killed themselves. One blew the backside of his head off. The other hanged himself in his own closet. God killed my two best friends. I hate him. He can go to hell. That's blasphemy. That's how hard the human heart can become. That's what they did. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and his water dried up. The seventh angel, verse 17, poured his bowl into the air. There was a loud cry, God saying from the temple, It is done. This is it. If this doesn't get their attention, nothing will. There was a flash of lightning, sounds of thunder, a great earthquake unlike any that any man had ever seen before. The great city was split. Every island fell away. Hailstones came down, a hundred pounds each crushing men, and men, verse 21, blaspheme God because of the plague. What is God to do in the face of that? Tie them up, put a noose around their neck, drag them kicking and screaming into the kingdom? Men deserve to be there. They are there by their choice. Why is hell eternal? Question number one, because the defiance of man is eternal. Why... Does God, a loving God, send people to a place of eternal torment? Question number two. Answer, He sends no man there. They send themselves there. Through a chosen lifestyle of stubborn, unrepentant rebellion. Last statement and I'm done. Characteristic number five of hell. Hell is a place where I deserve to be. I deserve to go there. I'm being as sincere as I possibly can. You don't know my heart. First time I ever said the name Jesus Christ, I was five years old. I said it as a swear word. Putting a nail into a two-by-four and I missed the nail and hit my thumb. Without a moment's hesitation, like a mad rush of venom spewing out of the... Tongue of a viper, I cried out, Jesus Christ! My dad came up to me, hit me across the mouth with the back of his hand, said to me, don't you ever say that again. That's why I say to you, whenever I am out the steps and open this book to teach the Bible, it is an incredible miracle to me that I, who started out my life as a blasphemer, have the opportunity to proclaim his name. And I lived the first 16 years of my life as a rebel. I wasn't going to bow my knee to anybody. My heart was as hard as concrete. My fist was clenched. But God did one more thing. He didn't end with an earthquake. He didn't end with a flash of lightning or a peal of thunder. He didn't stop by turning the rivers into blood. He didn't stop by causing the sun to nova and scorch men with its fierce heat. He said, I'm going to try one more thing. Maybe this will get their attention. I will become one of them. And will subject myself to the eternal torment and fury of my own wrath. And if I take My Son and submerge Him into that eternity of hell in their place, maybe that will get their attention. And so it was on the cross that Jesus cried out the words that are so easy for you and me to read but totally ignore. My God, my God! First time He ever addressed Him as God. Not the intimacy of Father, but now the fearsome declaration of a God of wrath. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? And in that moment of time, God the Father took His own Son and abandoned Him completely to the torments that I have just described to you multiplied by 5.2 billion people multiplied by an eternity of time in concentrated form scorching in with the fury of His own wrath in essence shattering the Trinity. Does that get your attention? It got mine. And the first time I ever heard that explained, I took my hardened heart and I softened it. And my clenched fist and I opened it. And my rigid knee I've bent it. Acknowledging Him as my Lord and He has been my Lord for 20 years. That is love. Imagine the emotion taking your only son and abandoning Him to that fury. Knowing all the while that there will be people who will mock what you have done declaring all eternity hide me from his presence as you take that white hot lava of your own wrath and pour it down upon that emaciated body of your own son I doubt if he even felt the thorn or the spear in comparison to that that's the torment of the cross not the whip Not the beating, not to minimize that, but that's common stuff. Human beings are tortured every day. The horror of the cross is to have that intimacy that he enjoyed with God the Father from eternity past, shattered as God forsook him. And it is the torment of all of his sinless perfection being defiled by the depravity collectively of all of us. If you think raping a woman violates the woman, how about... 5.2 billion people's depravity violating the sinless nature of Almighty God and then plunging Him into the white-hot lava of that eternal torment of hellish wrath. That was the cross. And is it any wonder He sweat drops of blood the night before, begging God to let the cup depart? I end with this question. Who did that to Him? Who could be so incredibly hard-hearted that they would do that to the Son of God? Who did it to Him? Three options. God did it. God did it because, in a sense, He loved you and me more than He loved His own Son. Subjecting His own Son to an eternity of hellish torment so that you and I wouldn't have to experience it. Yeah, God did it. But on a human level, who did it? Two options left. The Roman soldiers did it. They're the ones. The centurion took the spear, thrust it in his side. They are the ones who hammered the nails into his hands and feet. The Romans did it. Option number three. The Jews did it. They're the ones who cried out, crucify Him. They're the nation that abandoned His Messiahship. They're the ones who demanded His mutilation. Who did it? I close with the words of that prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. There was a day as I took my walks abroad when I came by a spot forever engraven upon my memory for there I saw this friend my best friend my only friend murdered I stooped down and sat afright and looked at him I saw that his hands had been pierced with rough iron nails, and his feet had been rent in the same way. There was misery in his dead countenance so terrible that I scarcely dared to look upon it. His body was emaciated with hunger, his back was red with bloody scourges, his brow had a circle of wounds about it. Clearly could one see that these had been pierced by thorns. I shuddered, for I had known this friend full well. He never had a fault. He was the purest of the pure. He was the holiest of the holy. Who could have injured him? He never injured any man. All his life long, he went about doing good. He healed sick. He fed the hungry. He raised the dead. For which of these works did they kill him? He had never breathed out anything else but love. And as I looked into the poor sorrowful face so full of agony and yet so full of love, I wondered who could have been a wretch so vile as to pierce hands like his. I said within myself, where can these traitors live? Who are these who could have smitten such a one as this? Had they murdered an oppressor, we might have forgiven them. Had they slain one who had indulged in vice or villainy, it might have been their desert. Had it been a murderer and a rebel, or one who had committed sedition, we would have said, bury his corpse. Justice is at last, given him his due. But when thou wast slain, my best, my only beloved, where lodged the traitors? Let me seize them, and they shall be put to death. If there be torments that I can devise, surely they shall endure them all. Oh, what jealousy! What revenge I felt! If I might find these murderers, what would I not do with them? As I looked upon that corpse, I heard a footstep and wondered where it was. I listened and clearly perceived that the murderer was close at hand. It was dark, and I groped about to find him. I found that somehow or other, Wherever I put out my hand, I could not meet with him, for he was nearer to me than my hand would go. At last, I put my hand upon my breast. I have thee now, said I, for lo, he was in my own heart. The murderer was hiding within my own bosom. The murderer was dwelling in the recesses of my inmost soul. Then I wept indeed that I, in the very presence of my murdered master, should be harboring the murderer, and I felt myself most guilty while I bowed over his corpse and sang that plaintive hymn. 'Twas "'Twas you my sins, my cruel sins, his chief tormentors were. Each of my crimes became a nail, and my unbelief, the spear." Who did that to him? The Romans? Jews. I did that to Him. I did that to Him. Love is more than a valentine. It isn't shaped by a heart. It's shaped by a cross. It isn't the red that was printed on that little card. It was the red liquid of His own blood that flowed down His body and into the soil. That's love. Pray together. Father.